concluding this week and next our Encounter Jesus for this season. Uh, we'll be taking a break from that in June, July, and August, and then, uh, God willing, we will be back in again after Labor Day with that. Uh, I'm excited. We still have plenty of Gospels to talk about next next year. We barely scratched the surface of Luke with our post-resurrection discussion these last few weeks, so we will dive into Luke come September uh, and then turn to John around the new year next year and then carry on from there. But this weekend next, we're sort of wrapping up. Uh, we saw last week the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to head into Acts chapter 2, and, and really we're going to be looking at the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the, the birth of the church in Jerusalem. It's a very exciting time. Uh, I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, and it's just, there's certain stories in the Bible you just get into, and you're like, I wish I was there to see it. This is absolutely one of them. just has to be one of the most amazing things uh, ever to see. Uh, so we'll talk about it some this week. We'll talk about it some next week. And I'll, I'll give you a note so you're not terribly shocked next week when you get here at 630. Uh, the kids are going to be here first. Uh, team kids going to be up here for their awards, for the end of the year awards. That'll probably take usually 20, 25 minutes. So it'll be a good chance for us to encourage and applaud them for scripture memorization and learning the books of the Bible and, and attendance and inviting friends and all the things they've done. And they'll go off and eat cake. I will understand if you sneak up with them. I won't be terribly upset, but we're not going to eat cake for the most part. We're going to stay and finish talking about Acts chapter 2, up to the birth of the, the Jerusalem church. So as I mentioned, we, we, we spent a lot of time last week talking about uh, Acts chapter 1 and uh, the ascension of Jesus, ultimately, and, and recall that at this point the disciples now have a very clear mission, what they're supposed to be doing in the world, but they're missing something. They're missing the power to do it. All right, if they went off now and tried to do it, it was going to, would be a, a complete disaster. And so they've been told to wait. Uh, you remember Acts 1.8 began with, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. They've been told to wait to receive this power to do this thing. And, and they have a little bit of a notion of what Jesus is talking about because they were with him in John chapter 16, and I want to spend just a few minutes looking at these verses, John chapter 16, verses 7 through, 7 through 15, where he's, uh, Jesus is talking about the Spirit. Because it gives us a little bit of insight into our, an understanding of the Spirit and how he works, uh, as well as uh, what they were expecting. So he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. This is always one of the most mind-boggling verses of Scripture for me uh, to think about. Like, it's, you're better off without me. This is Jesus talking here. You're better off without me. So it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I think this is really important to help us understand some of the most important things the Spirit does for us. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for 
will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So he is promising to send them the Holy Spirit once he departs and that the Spirit is really going to help them understand Scripture. They're going to understand the things he's been teaching them, understand the mission. He's going to, he's going to empower them to do the work. And so they are waiting, waiting expectantly. And it's important as we move into this Acts chapter 2 that we, we realize it's easy to read Acts as just this really interesting history of the early church. And we can say, man, Peter was awesome. And, and that Paul, he's amazing. And, and they're amazing guys, and they are amazing guys. Right? I always say, I, I'm not sure, but I would think I might be very uncomfortable to be in a room with Paul. He has a, such a, an intensity about him that radiates. Uh, he's so brilliant and so impassioned. Uh, but we should not read it as just this history of the church and the impressive accomplishments of these men in the, in the Bible times, but we need to understand that Acts fundamentally is about the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is very much the key figure, the key person working throughout the book of Acts to create the church, to propel the church forward, to accomplish that mission Christ gave it, to go and be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so I'm excited to talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit tonight as we see the Spirit arrive in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and jump to that passage now, to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 13 verses, and then we can go back and, and walk through it a little bit. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, this being the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. So the disciples are waiting, if you go back to verse 1, the disciples are waiting in Jerusalem. It is now the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover. Uh, Pentecost is a major Jewish festival. It celebrated the first fruits of the harvest. I don't really think it's an accident that what we see here takes place on Pentecost, because what we're really seeing here is the first fruits of God's harvest. It's a time when people have gathered from all around the world, and of course that's going to be an important theme we see in this passage because it gets back to that theme of being witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And, and who do we have seeing this, witnessing this pouring out of the Spirit? We have people from, from what, is, 
what does he say? Every nation under heaven. So all the ends of the earth have gathered, in one sense, to be there. So we see in verse 1, we see the disciples are gathered. And, and quite likely, if you jump back to chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, the odds are this is the group of about 120 disciples. Because it describes in Acts 1.15, the company of persons was in all about 120. So it's probably, given the proximity in the text, probably about that 120. Most likely, again, based on the, some text in chapter 1, they are gathered in the upper room. At the site of the Last Supper, most likely, they just have stayed. Uh, because it's referenced in chapter 1. And so then in chapter 2 through 4, we see this remarkable manifestation of the Holy Spirit, right? What is it? It says, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, so there's an enormous noise that fills the entire house. Then there's this appearance of, of tongues like fire that's on each of them. And then they begin speaking in other languages. And we see this, these tremendous manifestations of the Holy Spirit. They're very characteristic of the book of Acts. It happens a lot in the book of Acts. And we might naturally wonder, how come we don't see that much of, why didn't I do that when I became a believer, when the Holy Spirit you know, indwelt me? Why did, was nothing this dramatic? And I think that what we see, if you look at Acts, and if you look at the descriptions of the working of the Spirit and the other epistles, we see that this is kind of a function of this very particular era in the life of the church, that there is very dramatic appearance of the Holy Spirit to make it clear to people that this is real, the, to truly affirm the nature of the church, the authenticity of the belief. We see several places in the book of Acts where the Spirit comes in a very similar way to make it clear that a new group of people who normally would have been viewed as too awful to possibly be Christians have received the Holy Spirit. God's accepted them, therefore we too must accept them. We see a similar manifestation in Acts chapter 8, Verses 14 and seven, 14 through 17. Here they're in Samaria. We don't get a lot of the details, but you know we realize Samaria full of hated Samaritans, right? They, you know, half breeds, both both physically, but also uh, in terms of of their theology, and. Of course, we know that Philip, the evangelist, has gone there and seen this tremendous uh, revival, if you will, people coming to faith. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. All right, we have two, two men going to be witnesses to verify that this is a real thing. Right, You always had to have two men to verify that something was authentic. So they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And we don't get a lot of detail here about what that looked like, but clearly it was something that was visible. There was some clear, obvious sign, because you know we see, oh, well, they got the Spirit. They must be authentic believers. And then we see something similar in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48, when you know, okay, we've done Jerusalem and Judea, right? That's where chapter 2 takes place. Now, we've gone to Samaria in chapter 8. Now we're, we're dealing with a Gentile here, functionally the ends of the earth, although it's still the local physical neighborhood, but a Gentile. And 
this is when Peter and Cornelius have been together. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, all who were present, including the Gentiles. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Right? This is, helps us understand the level of skepticism that there was held by early Christians towards foreigners, towards Gentiles, that there's no way they could possibly be loved by God. There's no way they could be part of the church of God, at least not without becoming Jews first. Well, they're amazed by this because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So we see these manifestations of the Spirit were very much a dramatic way of making it clear God has accepted them. Their faith in Christ is sufficient. It's all they need to be saved. And that it is an offer of salvation that is given to everyone, not just Jews, not just people who decide that they're willing to become Jews. It is everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. So what we see in, in back in, chap, in our chapter 2, in verses 2 through 4, right, where we still are, I'm kind of jumping around, but I apologize for that. But what we see here is exactly what had been promised early in chapter 1, that you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. <laughs> Looking for somebody? Oh, no, he's, uh, he actually is going, he went to accompany um, somebody's like, senior recital. Sorry. High school. He's like at Woodbridge High School, I think. You got it. It's okay to text. Go for it. Maybe for you. <laughs> so what we see here, they, it had been promised in, in chapter 1, verse 5, that, that they were going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised this to them, and not, it wasn't going to be many days, and here it is, it's happening. And what we see are three very clearly described sensory proofs of the coming of the Spirit. And we talked uh, two weeks ago when we were talking about the very end of of the Gospel of Luke and the emphasis on the sensory experience of the resurrection of Jesus. That as witnesses, they, they had to experience him by, by hearing him and by seeing him and by touching him and, and seeing him eat and things like that to be effective witnesses. And here we're seeing very strong, distinct sensory experiences that allow them to be witnesses to the coming of the Spirit. Because we see here, this sound from heaven, like a mighty rushing wind. We, you know, that they're hearing. That's their 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 auditory sense. And then we see these tongues that, that look like fire resting on them, something visual. And then they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're speaking in tongues, and they're hearing this, you know, amazing miracle where the people are speaking in all these languages that they don't know, but are actual foreign languages. They're able to speak foreign languages they did not previously know, right? And we want to be clear with this. And this is, this is a dramatic shift. And as, as Peter unfolds the nature of what's going on here, we see that this is 
the long promise and very dramatic shift in the way the Holy Spirit operates with people. Because in the Old Testament, the Spirit would only come on very, very special people and, and only for limited times, maybe a very, very short time or maybe a, a period of years. Right? Some of the, if you look really carefully when you read the Old Testament, you'll see references to the Spirit coming on people. He, he comes on Samson and then he goes because uh, honestly, who would want to spend a lot of time with Samson uh, if you're the Holy Spirit? Uh, he, he, he comes on Saul in the early years of his kingship, and then, and then he leaves when Saul turns away from God. Uh, and then he comes on David and is with David for very many years. But it, he was very limited in terms of the number of people he came on. And so here we are seeing something very different. We are seeing this pouring out of the Spirit to baptize all believers in Jesus Christ with the Spirit. So now we have all these people gathered, verses 5 through 7 tell us about all these people who are gathered here, people from, from literally every nation under, the, under heaven, it says. And then it, we later on get a listing of them. And, and, they, and they are drawn to this sound. They are drawn to this, what's going on here, these people speaking the, the, all these languages uh, they, they can't help but see what it is. And so they, they, they're people who've gathered here. Some of them have traveled for the festivals. And some of them are people who've moved here back from the, the vast Jewish dispersion that had occurred in previous centuries and had moved back to the homeland, if you will, in Jerusalem. So there's all these people from all these different countries. And so it's kind of like a little appetizer of the ends of the earth, if you will. But in this case, all these people are Jews because where do they start in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and the ends of the earth. It, it's kind of funny. You can sort of hear from verse 7 they, where it says, they're amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? You sort of get the vibe that people didn't have a lot of respect for Galileans as being respectable, intelligent people. They seem to be looked down as sort of country folk or, or simpletons. So they're amazed that these Galileans know this enormous wealth of languages not even realizing that they don't know the languages, that the Spirit is giving them the ability to speak these languages. And verses 8 through 10 gives us this very long listing of all the nations to help us get the point, right? Luke wants us to understand throughout, right? This is a consistent theme of his gospel. We'll talk about this in September. This is a consistent theme of the book of Acts. The universality in the sense that the offer of salvation is to be made to all peoples of all nations. Not that everyone will be saved, but that everyone should have the opportunity to hear the gospel and choose it or reject it. And so we will see over and over again when we get into Luke the, the ways that that idea that, of, of that it's not just about the Jews anymore, it's about all nations having the opportunity to hear the gospel uh, play is woven throughout the Gospel of Luke, but here we're seeing it again. Luke is emphasizing this because, again, what do we see? We talked about last week in chapter 1 and chapter 2. They're about setting the stage for all of the events of Acts. And so here we have this, this manifestation where all these countries are here, present, represented by Jews, and they're hearing, and, and again, very long list. We hear Parthians and, and Medes and Elamites and Mesopotamians and Judeans and Cappadocians and uh, people from Pontus and, and Asia and, and Phrygia and Pamphylia. These are all various Roman provinces. Now, Parthia is a different country. Uh, they didn't get along with the Romans. Uh, but all these different aspects, these, you know, basically working their way all around the, the Mediterranean, uh, different Roman provinces, different countries. 
to emphasize this idea of, of you know, where to, you know, all these people that are hearing the gospel right here are going to hear the gospel. We'll talk about that next week. But uh, I just—it seems like I'm beating the, the 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 point on it. But Luke is beating the point on it, and I want to make sure we understand that when we read the gospels, when we read Acts, uh, or really any book of the Bible, we want to understand the point that the Spirit has impressed on the author, has inspired the author to share, uh, has given the words for the author to share, because that helps us understand what we're supposed to do with it. And so here we are seeing again and again this idea of, of all these nations who are hearing it. And if you look, I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know, the, the, both the, the works later in Acts and also the writings of the, of the epistles, uh, you know, addressing churches and groups in all these far-flung parts of the Roman Empire, and, and you sometimes wonder, how could there already be churches in these places? And, and certainly some, have, many have speculated that, it's, that it began with people who were here on the day of Pentecost, and then they went home, having been converted. But the interesting thing to me is, what is it they're talking about, right? What, what are they talking about? They're not talking about the weather. They're not talking about uh, traffic in Jerusalem, which was always really bad for the festivals because the city swelled up. In verse 11, we hear the content of what it is they're speaking about, right? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So the thing that the Spirit was inspiring them to speak, was, was gifting them to speak, were extolling God, praising God, reciting the, the great works of God. So it's really kind of a prophetic moment where they have a word from God uh, and are bringing uh, people's bringing people to God. And the people are just stunned by this. They're it says they're amazed and perplexed. Right? They've never seen anything like it. They don't know what's going on. There's all these. You know, this, this cacophony of voices, and yet they each can hear one th- the thread in their language. And, and it's, and just, you know, it's, but it's these apparent simpletons. And so they're amazed, they're perplexed, they, they want to know what this means. And I think this is intentional, right? The Spirit is doing this manifestation, he's doing this enormous work to draw people to him. He works to, you know, when the kingdom is first breaking into an area, he often manifests in very extraordinary ways. We see that throughout the book of Acts as a new area is being reached with the church, an area that, that has never, never heard the gospel before, perhaps has very little even knowledge of God. Quite often we see extraordinary works done with the inbreaking of the church. And we see that here. In fact, I mean, if you, if you talk and read about the mission fields today, there are still... I think some of the most credible uh, accounts of modern-day miracles take place at the frontiers of missions where the church is breaking in, where God's kingdom is breaking in to some place it's not been before. So you still, if you, again, if you read, there's, some very, there's, there's a lot of good encouragement to be read in, in sort of the accounts of missionaries, and, and there are a surprisingly large number of modern-day miracles that certainly seem very credible uh, as written uh, and people say, well, why don't we see them here? Well, because we have a church here. So we have someone to tell people about Jesus Christ. But where there is no church, quite often you see these kinds of things taking place. And it's so amazing that some people just assume the disciples are drunk. Verse 13. Others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So it just shows you every crowd has all kinds of people in it, 
some who are amazed and perplexed and kind of want to know, what is this great thing that's going on? And, and the others are like, these people are drunk. And so Peter gets up, and that's going to be where we, we pick up next. Uh, and he first addresses this claim that they're drunk. Very funny bit, I think. Uh, so we're going we're to read the first portion of Peter's sermon tonight and sort of talk about that and reflect a little more on the Holy Spirit. And then uh, next week we will conclude with uh, the rest of Peter's sermon. And that will be our kind of plan for the next two weeks. But I'm going to pick up at verse 14 and read through verse 21. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, he certainly begins very strong. And this is a powerful sermon, really. Look, Peter's first sermon after receiving the Holy Spirit, really his first sermon. Uh, but just we see the transformation, right? It was not that long ago we were talking about Peter denying Christ and, and, and you know, utter failure. And here it is, basically 50 days later. And he's about to, and he's giving this amazing sermon, and the difference is the Holy Spirit. And so he begins by saying, look, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, people. They're not drunk. And that's the intro. And then he says, instead, listen to what I have to say. He is about to explain what is going on, right? The Holy Spirit has worked in their lives. He has drawn the people. He has has brought the crowd to Peter, and now he is gifting Peter to speak. And Peter speaks very authoritatively here, and he begins to explain in verse 16 that what they are seeing and experiencing is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. We read it last week uh, as a little bit of a preview, and here Peter teaches from that portion of Joel chapter 2. I think it's I think it's verses 28 to 32, if I remember right. Um, if you want the reference to take a look at later. Um, yes. 28 to 32, for those who want the reference to look it up later and spend some time with it and just marvel at it. And what he says is quite accurately, right? Joel is prophesying about the final days, the last days. Talking about the coming of the day of the Lord, the time of judgment, right? And many of the Old Testament prophets have talked about the day of the Lord, the, the, the coming judgment. And so he's describing that in those last days would be this pouring out of the Holy Spirit, right? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
sons and daughters will prophesy, young men shall see visions, old men shall dream dreams. And he's saying that's what's happening now. They, we have men and women right now, presumably, right, large group of people prophesying. They've received the Spirit. They are pronouncing the great works of God. Right? They are prophesying, not in the sense of foretelling the future, but in the sense of passing on a message from God, which is the biblical, most immediate biblical definition of prophecy. And what he's saying is that one of the signs of the last day is this pouring out of God's Spirit, that it would go far and wide, not just on a few people or a few special people for a season of their life, but it would go, go on to men and women of all ages, slave and free. Right, And the salvation would be for those who call on the name of the Lord. And Peter explains this text, and well, next week we'll see what he explains is that by the name of the Lord, he means those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. That'll be covered in Acts 2.36. But I think the important thing to draw away from, one of the things that's important for us to understand is that we're in this era now. We are in the last days. We have been in the last days for almost 2,000 years. But this is the final stage of redemptive history before the return of Jesus, before the times described at the end of Revelation. Right? And we need to understand we are in the age of the Holy Spirit. We are in the church era. Right? The next chapter is that which we see at the end of Revelation. And we need to live accordingly as people who are in the last days. And as we have said, there is no certainty about when that will those days will come to an end. We talked about that in Acts chapter 1, right? When, when the only thing that was on the apostles' mind was, when was Jesus going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus had to stretch their minds a bit. Say, no, this is about the kingdom of God. This is not about your country. This is not about your church. This is about God's kingdom, making it bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we need to live accordingly to that, and I just wanted to take a few moments, having seen this outpouring of the Spirit, just to, to think about a few passages that talk about the Spirit. We could talk about the Spirit a lot, and we should. Uh, the Spirit is quite often neglected in sort of church life in terms of talking about him. He tends to be the forgotten member of the Trinity. Uh, we talk a lot about God the Father. We talk a lot about Jesus the Son. But the Spirit often does not get a lot of attention. Uh, but we need to understand, you know, you read Acts, this is the story of the Holy Spirit working with tremendous power. If you read the epistles, we see so many references to the power of the Spirit and the way He works. And, and we need to understand, right, He is, this is one of the great blessings of being a Christian is when you are saved, you are indwelled by the Spirit. This week in my, I guess yesterday actually, uh, in my morning reading, I was in Titus chapter 3 and found this great passage that I just sort of wanted to think about a little bit. Uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in our righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I just, I mean, I love these words. I love thinking about this. The, the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior, the way he saved us, right? Not because of anything we do. 
not because of how often we come to church or how hard we work at church or, or any of the other good things we do in life, but because of His mercy. And not by us doing anything particular, but by His washing of regeneration and the, the renewal that we get of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, really, He gives us, He is with us always, and He is our, our source of power, our source of renewal. And we so often neglect Him. We so often quench the Spirit, as Paul says in Thessalonians. And we pour it out on us richly. And I just, having been studying for this passage of tonight in Acts chapter 2, I was, I was able to really put, a, put the visual on the way He poured out richly the Holy Spirit on us through Jesus Christ our Savior. So being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And again, hope always means certainty in the Bible. Confident expectation of things not yet here. Um, I just, you know, so we see there one of the purposes of the Spirit, right? Renewal. He does so many things. We could talk a long time about the many things the Spirit does for us and why we should not neglect Him, why we should not quench Him uh, in our lives because uh, it's to our detriment as Christians. But that Spirit of Renewal, Right, and I think we all need renewal at different times in our lives. Uh, we live in an area that dr- grinds us down and, and wears us out. Uh, we have crises in our lives, right? We all know right now people who are acutely in crises, and we just pray for the renewal of the Spirit in their lives. And then I thought about Ephesians chapter one, verses thirteen and fourteen, which is one of my favorites. Uh, whenever the subject of of uh, perseverance of the saints comes in. Right, the topic of can we lose our salvation? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And I think this is important for a lot of reasons, right? Because we see this dramatic manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And so we might be tempted to question, well, do I have the Holy Spirit? Am I really a believer? Am I right? Well, Paul says it very clearly here. Right When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed. Right, Sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And we understand, this is a term from, from that, the time when you know, rulers and emperors would seal their documents with a heavy imprint to say, this is mine. This is authentic. No one can forge this. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. He is, and that word guarantee, right, we can think of guarantee in an absolute sense. We can also think of it and understand it as a down payment, right? So the Holy Spirit now is the down payment that assures us that when we pass on, we will receive our inheritance in heaven. Right, so this is a favorite passage of mine when people say, can I lose my salvation? Well, you didn't earn it. You're not going to unearn it. It was given to you as a, by, as a gift by God. And you have been sealed. You have been guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. He is the proof that we belong to God. There's a lot of interesting things about sealing and marking, right? If you read Revelation, marking. Well, we have been marked. We are marked by the Holy Spirit. We are marked as God's property. Just two more in Galatians chapter 5. 
We could talk way longer, but I'm not going to keep us forever and ever. Uh, we may even run a little bit short because I didn't want to like put it down 27 Holy Spirit passages and bore you all. But Galatians chapter 5, and you shouldn't be bored by it, but you know, if I do a poor job, I understand. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, right? This is an instruction for how we are to live. Right? And we so seldom think about the Spirit in our lives. We, we don't talk about it a lot in churches, unless you're a charismatic church, and then they kind of go in a very different direction on the Spirit. But you say, walk by the Spirit. That's how we're supposed to be living. And, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? The Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, cultivating our relationship with God through things like prayer and the study of Scripture. These are the things that nourish our relationship with the Spirit. These are the things that keep us from giving in to our fleshly temptations. Right? We know we're never going to be perfect Christians this side of heaven. We will fall and make, make mistakes, and the good news is God forgives us when we repent, we know that, but, but here, when we want to do better, we don't do better by trying harder. Well, we try that a lot, it doesn't work. But eventually, we get tired of it, at least if we're rational and say, and we're tempted to give up. But the point is here, no, the way, you, the way you defeat the things that tempt you is not to try harder, it is to walk by the Spirit. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. The closer we press into God, to God's Word, to God's Spirit, the less the world, the flesh, is tugging on us, pulling on us to go back and do that thing again, whatever that thing is for us. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Right? What a tremendous freedom the Spirit gives us. People tend to think of Christians as being people with lots of rules and got to do this and don't do that and very legalistic. And that's utterly missing the point of Christianity. And many churches, unfortunately, we do this to ourselves. We become legalistic. But that's not the good news. The good news is that, as we've been seeing, we are saved by grace and we are equipped to deal with the bad things. So yes, God has standards. He has very high standards. We are called to live by these standards. But we are equipped to do it if we will just avail ourselves of the Spirit. Now again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 makes it clear. We can choose to ignore the Spirit in our lives. We can quench the Spirit and diminish His effectiveness in our life to such a degree because we don't want to hear from Him. We don't want to hear the conviction He has from us. We don't want to take advantage of the strength He gives us. We don't want the comfort He provides. But this is saying clearly, if we want to solve our sin problems, those things that continue to tug at us, chip away at us, undermine our walk with Christ, well, you got to walk with the Spirit. And then he emphasizes, right after he gives a long list of uh, the bad things you should not do, the works of the flesh, he gets us to verses 22 through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is what comes out of us as we walk with the Spirit. This is the product, by the way, 
small Bible trivia. It actually matters theologically, but Bible trivia, most people will say the fruits of the Spirit. It is singular. There is one fruit of the Spirit, uh, and it is these things. I sort of liken it in my poor analogy of that. It's sort of like saying the fruit of the orange tree is orange and round and sweet and juicy. And Well, the fruit of the Spirit of a relationship, a life filled with the Holy Spirit, is a life full of love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the bonus, if you will, the upside of, of life, right? In life in Christ is that we are not a slave to these passions and desires anymore. They're still trying to do stuff with us, but they have been crucified. They are dead. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And that really, as we move to some questions and and prayers, uh, that should be our goal, right? That we walk, we live a life of obedience to Christ. We live a life where we are walking in step with the Spirit. Not running ahead of the Spirit, not trailing behind the Spirit, but walking in step with the Spirit as He guides us and leads us as we spend more and more time in God's Word, uh, and are transformed by that daily encounter with the Spirit.